this morning, as we had our introduction last week, and I know we're going to have to fly through some of these things, but last week we introed the book of 1 Corinthians, and we looked at the first uh, five or so verses. Today we start what is going to probably be an eight-part series, but we'll see how that unfolds, which we have entitled Identity. And identity is a very important thing to have as an individual. It's to know where you find your identity. But even as we'll be looking in context this morning, what is the identity of the church? Meaning, what should the church look like? Now, I don't know if you've been in situations where you've learned from other people of, well, of what not to do. Like, I've been around these people and I know for the rest of my life what not to do. And then there's some people that you learn from and you're like, I would love to emulate myself after them and I have learned what to do. Well, the book of Corinthians, this first letter, 1 Corinthians, we're going to be learning a lot about what not to do. We will learn nonetheless, but hopefully it will serve as a heads up for our church if we start to see anything happen in our personal lives or in the collective body of Christ that needs to be addressed. And so, I have two points this morning. And point number one is this, the church divided in Jesus. Now, before we get there, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth because there were problems. Now, some people, and you might be one of them today, are only looking to attend the perfect church. Like, I, I, I just don't know which church to go to. I want to go to the perfect church. And just kind of a word to the wise, if you ever find the perfect church, don't attend it because you'll ruin it. And that's because the church is imperfect, because the church is comprised of people who are not perfect. That's why there is a need for spiritual leadership in every church. And the Lord raises up individuals to fulfill those roles, to meet those needs. He raises up people with that responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the Christian church. Now, have you ever noticed this in your own life? Uh, maybe you have, or maybe in someone else's life, how there's always this thought when a problem arises. Okay, you ready for this? <laughs> Are you ready? So a problem arises and you think, um, is there any chance this can just go away by itself? Is there any chance, like maybe if I just pretend that it's not there, it will go away? Or, you know, what if we kind of just sweep it under the rug and so people don't get offended and there doesn't have to be any confrontation of evil? And, you know, unfortunately, as much as we would like problems to just dissipate into thin air, sin doesn't go away by itself. Sin needs to be dealt with because the problems grow and sin spreads. And if sin spreads, then the destruction left in its wake spreads as well. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is why it's so vitally important for us as a church that its foundation and its practice be built upon the word of God. What does God's word say? How are we supposed to act and how are we supposed to deal? See, it says that the word of God is profitable for doctrine where, you know, you open your Bible, and that's why we say bring your Bible. Bring your Bible app. Just make sure you're not playing Angry Birds or something else on it. You know, the doctrine, it provides solid biblical instruction and understanding. 
It says that the word of God provides reproof, which means it provides a necessary rebuke if you're wrong. Like if you're doing something wrong and it says you're doing something wrong, it is that necessary reproof. It also says it brings correction. And I love that it says correction because really what it means is restoring you to the right place again. It just doesn't show you that you're wrong. It shows you how you can be right. Again, it says instruction in righteousness, meaning that it cultivates this thought and understanding. It educates and cultivates your mind and morals and helps you become complete in all things. And finally, it says it it equips and it gives you what you need to do what is good. It gives you what you need. And so as we embark upon the open waters, if you will, of 1 Corinthians and this new series entitled Identity, we're going to see the Word of God in full effect. We're going to see how it applies to our lives. The church in Corinth was in such a terrible place that many believe that Paul wrote maybe three or four letters at least and had visited three times. We'll see in Paul's epistles that there is pretty much not a subject that he does not cover. And so that's why we go through the whole Word of God because there's a tendency in churches today, we kind of pick and choose the things that we want to talk about and we kind of eliminate the things that we don't really want to talk about and so we are not teaching the whole counsel of God. However, when you teach verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book, then you cover all the pleasant things and you cover all the unpleasant things and then the hearers are able to have the whole counsel of God. And there's really not another way that Paul could have covered all the things that he will cover in this letter unless the Holy Spirit had empowered him. And really the key to all of this is found, and you can write this down in 1 Corinthians 2, 2. He says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So everything that Paul will be sharing in this letter is going to come from the viewpoint of Jesus Christ and the cross. It will be like, if Jesus died, then this. Or if Jesus died, then that. So Paul's doctrine and life and practice was all based on Jesus and Him crucified. In 1 Corinthians, and we'll get there later on at the end of our study in this letter, 15 verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died according to our or Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures now as a church we need to be focused on our spiritual belief and our practical behavior now as my father-in-law pastor John Vickery says and I quote what we believe determines how we behave end of quote in verse 10 in verse 10 he says now I plead with you brethren 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so now, as was already mentioned, this leads us to point number one, which I have entitled, if you think just in parentheses, so parenthetically, the church, and then in big caps, divided in Christ. Divided in Christ. Now, does that sound right to you? Does divided in Jesus sound right to you? Does that make you feel comfortable? Well, it shouldn't. Paul pleads with the Corinthians and the church in Corinth there that there should be no divisions among them. 
No divisions. There in verse 10, he says, no divisions among you. The word for divisions is really where we get our word schism. So our word schism is is derived from that Greek word where he says divisions. It's not a good thing when you're standing on one side of the schism and the rest of the church is standing on the other side. That's not a good sign. More so, Paul is saying that the church needs to stop tearing each other up. Tearing each other up. Have you ever heard of the phrase, and I think we all have, divide and... Divide and... Yeah, thank you. From an enemy's perspective, they're able to control a group of people by encouraging dissent between them. See, the enemy would say, when they're looking at their foe, hey, if we can get this group of people to be so consumed with fighting with each other, we can conquer them. This isn't just a military strategy. This is the spiritual strategy of Satan to conquer the church. If Satan can get the Christians in the church to fight each other, to to chop each other, to tear each other up, and they're too busy with that to concern themselves with the real issue that people are going to hell. Divide and conquer. Paul says, may there be no divisions among you. No divisions among you. Stop tearing. Even that word divisions. We've looked at it. That there be no divisions among you. It's talking about rending. Tearing. So you see a group of people that are called Christians that are in a church that are tearing each other apart. The church in Corinth was a divided church and it would appear that it was the thread being pulled, so to speak, that would unravel the rest of it. Abraham Lincoln once said, and I quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand. End of quote. He actually got that from Jesus because in Mark 3, verse 25, Jesus said, and if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. So, He says, may there be no divisions among you. Think of this, rend, tearing. But in verse 10, in the first half, Paul says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there be no divisions among you. He'd basically be saying, stop rending. Stop rending. And we'd see now in the second half of verse 10, start mending. Stop rending, start mending. And he says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That phrase, perfectly joined together, can mean to mend what has been broken. So he's saying, you guys are in the church and you're tearing each other apart. You are breaking each other. And he says, instead of being divided, I want you to start mending, start replacing, start healing. Do you have something against your brother or sister in Christ? Fix it. In verse 11 it says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, verse 12, I am of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Now, it was reported by Chloe, and she either had a a home church, like we have house groups where the church met in her house, or she was a part of the congregation and heard these things going on, and she mentioned it to Paul. But basically, meaning that there were argumentative people in the church, and it was causing major strife in the church. Brothers were offending brothers and sisters were offending sisters and it was causing this schism, this division. 
In Proverbs 18, 19, it says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. See, contentions isolate the church one from another. You know, by God's grace, this church has been known to people that have attended it as a very friendly church where they feel welcome and they feel like they meet people and they connect with other people. And you really have to do a good job of trying not to be friendly in order to not meet people here at church. But when you start to see churches that are divided and people that are saying terrible things about each other and not acting Christ-like, it causes breakdowns in the body of Christ. It isolates people one from another. Now, you've probably noticed this more than in times past in church history, how Christians like to identify with something that's cool or that is popular or that is happening. Like, and you'll see it even more so, I think, in Orange County as well, where there are a lot of amazing things that happen in Orange County, in Christendom, if you will. And so you'll see a lot of church hopping and church bouncing and this kind of thing where people aren't committing to a church and being involved and serving and giving, but rather, what can I receive? What can I get out of things? You know, let's just, uh, as a general analogy... You know, you'll start to see this kind of thing like, I'm of, a, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Apollo. So they'd be like, I'm of Hillsong. We're number one, baby. Or, no, you got it wrong. Calvary Chapel, Holy Spirit, doves all the way. That's the way that it is. You know, you'll hear Christians, and you'll quote them, and they'll say, you know, I follow Greg. I follow Keller. I follow MacArthur. Or even in some argumentative circles i follow calvin might i just ask what about following jesus i follow jesus how about that now this morning i have to be really honest with you uh, i don't have a problem if you like me at all i mean if you like me then that's that's totally cool with me I, i'm not going to argue with you if you're like hey i really like you garrett i'm going to be oh cool thank you i like you too however Vision City Church is not about Garrett. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about the man. It's about the man, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for the sins of the world. It's about Jesus. He builds his church. I don't build this church. Thank God I don't build this church. Jesus builds his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But you can see how all of a sudden the big picture of the body of Christ can start to kind of shatter off this way. And then our identity may be found in the person that we follow. Hey, I'm a vision city, or I'm of this, or I'm of that, or I'm of this. And you'll hear, well, I'm Armenianist, well, I'm a follower of a Calvin. Or I'm, or, and, and you're thinking, well, what about we're Christians and we follow Jesus? What about that? I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. Paul's like, who are these guys? Did any of them lay down their lives for your sins? Then what are we doing? See, the identity of the Christian is in Jesus. The identity of the church is in Jesus, not its spokesperson, not its front man, not its leadership. It's in Jesus. So I'm hoping that if you call this place home, that you'll know that this church is about proclaiming the name of Jesus and him alone. And that we walk humbly before the Lord because we need that grace. That we're a collective body and rather I like to call it a family and we could even say welcome home on Sundays when you come here. 
because you are in a safe environment with people that love the Lord and want to glorify his name. Paul says in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, and besides that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now, during this time period where we're reading about, it was very, very common for uh, uh, teachers to acquire disciples, (laughs) even as it is today. And then the disciples would argue with other teachers' disciples about whose doctrine was best and who had the real authority. And it's the same thing that happens today. You'll get followers of a particular individual and then those followers will argue with each other about who's right and who's wrong. Well, what authority does he have to say that? And what authority does does he have to mention this? And, And you'll see it happens even today and it happened even back then. Well, who's the real authority? Who's the foremost authority? Who's the what? And, and these arguments happen. Paul doesn't even touch on his own personal authority as being an apostle, but he points to the authority of Jesus Christ and who he is. He wasn't like, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you where I went to school. Let me tell you all of the, the degrees that I have. He's like, it's not about me. It's about who is Jesus and what he's done for you. May we be reminded that though we love our leaders and we love our church, that we identify with Jesus. That's who we find our identity in. We identify with Jesus because if you just hear me very simply on this, a true leader in the church will point people to follow Jesus, not themselves. That's it. A true leader in the church will point people to follow Jesus, not themselves. In verse 17, it says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul was sent to tell people about Jesus, and he states it there very clearly. Now, do you remember in our study last Uh, Sunday, how we uh, touched on that subject of speaking eloquently, and it was called, whoa, you speak in the Corinthian way. Do you remember that? Where you would be very, and it just meant you were very polished, you you used, you know, 10 cent words, every other word, and Paul says, I didn't use wisdom of words to mesmerize people with my eloquence, but rather I spoke very simply so that the power of God could resonate with all who would hear. Sometimes you'll hear a word and you're like, I don't even know what that word means. I've never even heard that word before. And then they rattle off a whole bunch of them. And then the audience is like, I have no idea what he just said. Let's just nod and say yes. See, Paul was sent to make disciples for Jesus. Paul was sent to maximize the effect of the cross of Christ, not to diminish it. And see, as a church... Or as leaders, we will diminish the effect of the cross of Christ when we remove the focus from being upon Jesus and place it upon ourselves or on something other than Him. If the church's focus is upon Jesus, then we're united. If the focus is on its leaders or some other topic, we will be divided. Do you see how that works? 
If the church is focused on Jesus, we're united. If we're not, we're divided. It's as simple as that. The church cannot be divided if we are truly in Jesus. And so point number one was the church divided in Jesus. And you should say, that's not right. That doesn't make sense. And if you're saying that right now, then we have accomplished what we wanted to accomplish in point number one. The church divided in Jesus. And we might even want to add a question mark. Divided in Jesus? How does that even work? I think we'd all agree for the need for the church to be united, not divided. Though we see the Corinthian church was divided in Jesus, that leads us to point number two, our final point this morning, which is now, remember, parenthetically, the world and then big caps, divided on Jesus. So we have this group of Christians that are divided in Jesus. I don't even know how that works, right? How is there divisions among you? He says, you guys need to be of the same heart and same mind. And then we see now him shift to the world, and it's divided on Jesus. So how can we have a church divided in Jesus? And now we're going to see divided on Jesus is the world. And he says, for the message in verse 18 of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, do you remember when I said that the focal point of Paul's letter was Jesus and him crucified? Here we go again, the cross of Christ. So let's look at those dying in sin. It says in verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, so often we'll hear, we will hear people say that you know, when, when they hear that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, they'll be like, why? Why? It seems that Jesus was defeated when he was crucified. His enemies got the best of him. Yet the Greeks, when Paul was in Athens, and you can read about this in Acts, they mocked Paul regarding Jesus' death and resurrection. See, those that are dying in their sins, they wonder, why do I need forgiveness? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross at all? Because most believe they can get to heaven by themselves. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I need faith in Jesus. What? He died on the cross for my sins? Yeah, okay. But he contrasts those dying in sin with those saved from sin. In verse 18 again, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God was demonstrated by Jesus' death on the cross as the power of sin was crushed broken and forgiveness was made possible for all mankind and you guys know john three sixteen. for god so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life jesus death on the cross means that i don't have to die for my sins jesus death on the cross means that i'm a new creation in christ jesus death on the cross means that the old things have passed away jesus death on the cross means that all things are made new for those that are saved jesus death on the cross is the power of god and we recognize that for those that are dying in their sin they do not in verse 19 for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. In verse 20, it says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God 
through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, my pastor who's gone home to be with the Lord, Chuck Smith, said in his motto for ministry was simply teach the Bible simply. For some, it's just too simple. In the wisdom of man, man chose to reject God and accept evolution. I mean, I think anybody who's had a child and has had an ultrasound, you cannot think that that is an accident. I mean, from, from the goo to the zoo to you, and that's, that's what we believe. And then you put that little you know, ultrasound device on, on the baby, and, and, and you hear you know, the, the baby's heartbeat. It's like a four-on-the-floor house beat. For those of you that are musicians, you know what that is. Like, and then you see the curvature of its spine, and you see the, you know, you know, the hands moving, and, it, and you think, man, that is one of the most amazing accidents I've ever seen in my entire life. For some people that aren't trying to have kids, they might think that, but we know that life itself is no accident. Some of the most intelligent people in the world are extremely, sorry to say, stupid when it comes to spiritual things pertaining to God. See, it pleased God, it says there. It was God's plan for a simple message to be unpacked to a lost and dying world. Simple message that meant so much. What seemed as God's mistake or foolishness on his part was the very thing that brought salvation to the world. In Matthew 16, 25, it says, Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the world reads that and you'd be like, what in the world? I thought it was he who died with the most toys wins. See, the world is divided from Jesus in their way of thinking and in their way of living. The world's identity is found in the things that they personally have a grasp of. And whether that's intellectually or actually materially, that's where their identity is found. Then you would have to ask yourself, and if you're honest, and you just answer this question honestly, are you really your possessions? Are you your abilities? Because what if you lose your abilities? What if you lose your possessions? The second verse following the verse I just read in Matthew 16, verse 26, it says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so this series is we're going to be looking at probably the first four chapters under this umbrella of identity. It's like, where is our identity found? Where is the, the individual member of the church's identity found? It should be in Jesus, not in some person. Not in something, because the world is divided on the subject of Jesus. The church should not be divided in their identity in Him. Look at verse 22. It says, For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Let's look at the Jews. The power of a miracle cannot replace the permanence of faith. I want to see a sign. Way before Britney Spears was singing about it, the Jews were asking for it. I want to see something miraculous. Show it to me. But then the thing is, the, the power of a miracle cannot replace the permanence of faith. People may seek to be entertained as the Jews. You know, show us something that we haven't seen. 
You know, at house groups, we touched on this a little bit, where Jesus told the followers uh, that were following after him, you guys aren't following me for any other reason except you saw the miracle of feeding the 5,000 the day before, and you want to see something happen again. You think you'll believe in Jesus if you see? 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. The Jews and people today, like, I want to be entertained by something. The Greeks, in Acts 17, 21, a little insight to this, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. The Greek culture. Acquire knowledge of something you haven't heard before. So instead of the Jews saying, hey, show me something I haven't seen before, and that's why in churches, I don't know if you've noticed this, you've known this or, or, or noticed this in other places as well, they'll do crazy stuff. Like in one church I know of, the guy ziplined from the rafters of the church carrying a briefcase with Mission Impossible music going on in the background. And he dropped down. And it was all about the theme. And they're like, whoa, it's like, you know, where's the pyro stuff? You know? And, and then one, one guy wore a diaper on stage to talk about babies in Christ. And I'm going, whoa. If I ever come out with a diaper on stage, will you leave as fast as you possibly can? God forbid. No, but the thing is, like, show me something. I want to be entertained. That's why I come to church. I want to see something. The Greeks wanted to hear something. Acquiring knowledge for the sake of knowledge. But we might have an intellectual understanding, but that understanding must travel the distance from here to here. It must transfer into faith. Like, I can learn, but if I learn for the sake of learning and have not faith, then it doesn't profit me anything. The point here is, though, the world is divided on Jesus. But the common ground between the Jews outside of Christ and the Gentiles outside of Christ, remember we just looked at the Jews seek a sign and the Greeks seek knowledge. The common ground between these two people groups that are outside of the church is that what they're doing is self-seeking. It's self-seeking. Show me something. Tell me something. I want to learn knowledge. I want to acquire knowledge. I I want to be entertained. But it's self-seeking. And if self-seeking is in the church, that is where divisions come from. And instead of being united in Jesus, the church becomes divided in Jesus, which should not be the case at all. It's oxymoronic. That's why James wrote in chapter 3, verse 16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And so if you have a group of people in a church that are envious of each other and that are seeking basically what they can get and what they can acquire. It's called self-seeking. Like, what do I gain from this? Where it's really just selfishness. James says that in that group, there will be confusion and every evil thing. And this is what was happening in the church in Corinth. Some want to see a sign. Some want to learn a new thing for the sake of knowledge. But in verse 23, Paul says but we preach Christ crucified. This is the reason we exist as a church. So with all the stuff that's going on, what do you get? You get Jesus Christ. And this is the focal point of Paul's message. Again, reminding the strayed church in Corinth that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Him. That's the focal point. Learning about Him. Studying His Word. 
He says in verse 23, and this is where we will wrap up, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Some, they stumble over Jesus dying on the cross. They can't accept it. God sent his only son Jesus to die on the cross. I, I can't accept that. I don't, I don't understand that. Some think, ah, how foolish. What foolishness. And many of the practicing atheists hold this position in their faith. And yes, I said atheistic faith because it's a huge step of faith to believe that there is no God. But he says, but to those who are called, and there it is again, that word called, do you remember that was from verse 1 of chapter 1? Paul said, Paul, called, means invited. One that heard the calling of the Lord. It's the same word that Paul used in verse 1 where he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. So for those who have heard the call of God, they have found that the cross and Jesus is not a stumbling block. Nor is it foolishness. It's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. That's what we believe because we have been saved. To those who are saved, it's the work of God in our lives. And in verse 25, where we conclude this morning, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And to that we say amen and amen. And let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to go over the things that we went over today. And I pray, Lord, as I hope we could all pray in agreement, that our church would be a unified church. Lord, that there would be no divisions among us. And Lord, if there has been anything that has taken place, Lord, unbeknownst to us, where there has been things said that shouldn't have been said or people treated the way that they shouldn't have been treated. We ask, Lord, that you would begin to join the family together again perfectly. Lord, that you would remove anything that our enemy would seek to cause division in, in our church. Lord, I pray that we would be perfectly united and that we wouldn't be like the church in Corinth, divided. I ask, Lord, that you would please protect us Please help us, Lord, not to be self-seeking. Lord, please help us, Lord, to deem others better than ourselves. Help us, Lord, to not be consumers, Lord, but givers, providers. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless your church, Lord, and bless your people. And help us, Lord, that though it might seem foolish to the world, Lord, though people may not understand it, We pray, God, for the wisdom to be able to powerfully and yet simply communicate the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we share Jesus and Him crucified and all of the blessings that come from that very act. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to have your way here. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.